A key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Hi, this is Victoria Meyer. Welcome to The Chemical Show. This week, I am welcoming back Patrick Rapella, who is CEO of the Rapella Group, one of the premier executive search firms in the chemical industry. Pat was featured on episode three of The Chemical Show way back at the beginning. And if you haven't listened to that yet, go check it out. We'll also be linking it in the transcript and in the show notes so that you can have a chance to listen to both episodes. Pat, welcome to The Chemical Show. Thank you very much, Victoria. Nice to see you again. Lovely to see you again as well. So, you know, we're just going to jump right in. What's been going on and how has the world of executive recruiting been over the past year? Well, for us, it's been incredibly busy and it's been a lot of fun because a lot of the baby boomers that were supposed to retire finally are in huge numbers and that many of them are at the highest levels. So within the chemical industry, you've got a lot of dynamics that are making the chemical industry very profitable right now. And most companies are having record years. Private equity is extremely excited about that. And of course, they're knocking on doors, looking for acquisitions in the chemical industry like I've never seen it before. All of the reports about acquisition numbers are off the charts. But along the lines of that, supporting the executive search business, often when a company is acquired, a lot of leadership changes are taking place too. The leaders are saying, hey, I'm going to take my money and go do something else. I'm not sure I really want to work under private equity, but I was okay with being a part of the sale. Now I'm going to go work for another company. So there's a lot of movement. It's keeping us extremely busy. That's awesome. I think that's good for you. And it's good for people that are in the market for a new job. Yeah. People who want to try new opportunities and solve new problems. Absolutely. So, you know, you've talked about private equity, and I know that you've been increasing your focus on private equity and board searches. So how has that grown and evolved over the past year or two? Yeah. I'll give you a little history and then dive into the present. For 35 years, we've been specializing in the chemical industry. and We're pretty well recognized now as the largest boutique firm on the planet focused exclusively on the chemical industry. For the first 10 years of the business, we focused on all the big dogs. We wanted to have the Dow's and the BSF's and all the large Fortune 500 chemical companies as clients, so we could say on our website that that's what we're doing, you know, with the with the best, most well-recognized companies. And we've done that very successfully. What we found in the next 10 years was a lot of really neat mid-market leading, mid-sized companies that were growing very fast that also needed our help. And we found them a lot of fun to work with, a whole lot less bureaucratic and often a lot more stable. The larger the company, the more likely people are promoting and moving and leaving. The smaller and more mid-sized companies are longer term focused. And we found that there was a lot more value we could create when placing senior level executives in those organizations, because it just makes a bigger impact when you bring in a a C-suite leader or even a director, VP, presidential type of uh, candidate. But of course, the challenge there was getting them to pay our fees at the level 
we wanted them to pay. They were sharpening their pencil on our contracts nonstop. We found that was, you know, a part of a challenge for us. So we were ebbing and flowing, you know, between the Fortune 500 and the mid-market firms up until more recently. Now, we're, you know, we're 20 years in going into the last 10, 12 years. Private equity firms start coming into the chemical industry in huge numbers, more and more all the time by the year. And as they're coming in, they're saying, hey, whoa, whoa, headhunters are extremely important to the acquisitions that we're making. So yes, we want the best search firms working with our holdings, with our C-suite leadership teams. And the leadership at these mid-market firms start taking a whole new look at using headhunters. So as a result, in the last 10 years, our business has done a substantial shift from what was 80% Fortune 500 clients to now 80% mid-market leading firms, but with the majority of them being backed by private equity. So as we spent more and more time working with private equity, we started learning a whole lot more about what they need in not only their top leaders, but also in their own private equity firms, their own talent requirements with inside the firms and how they go about finding acquisitions and deal flow. So over the last year or two, we've transitioned the company again to a substantially new forefront where we're now focusing on marketing C-suite leaders as backable CEOs, active chairmen, operating advisors, going right into the private equity firms and leaving corporate America and now working literally side by side, joined at the hip with private equity. Interesting. So what does it mean to be a backable CEO? What does that mean? Most people hear that term and don't really understand that it's a a very unique role. You're not working as a CEO until you get an acquisition. You're working as a business development rep for all intents and purposes. But you're doing so with the understanding that as a part of a team, if you identify a company that would then be acquired, the private equity firms will pay you handsomely very significantly for bringing that acquisition to the table. They use a model called the Lehman formula. And the Lehman group created this uh, formula for compensating people who brought deals to the acquisition table. And once they close, it's a significant commission model that generates hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars in fees. So for an executive that is used to making hundreds of thousands, if not millions as a C-suite leader, but being able to do this work as a kind of a sole proprietor, entrepreneur from their own home without all the headaches and the responsibilities of managing large budgets and people and all the problems that comes with that. It can be a really neat transition before retirement. Yeah, that's interesting because I I do think it's one of these things when I talk to people and I've had some guests on my show have done something similar. So John Foley would be one of the guys that comes to mind who's, who's, is doing private equity. And I know he, you know, he talks about how he searched for the right PE firm to partner with, to go help go out and find, find things. But I think it's, if you haven't done it, it's a bit of a mystery, even for a chemical executive who, you know, has a ton of experience, has a ton of know-how in the industry. eh, There's still a lot of mystique in the private equity world. Exactly. And if you haven't worked for a private equity firm as an operating advisor over existing holdings or been a partner of a private equity firm, what goes on and what work needs to be done to find acquisitions, to do the due diligence, to negotiate the deals, and then to, once the deal is closed, determine who's going to be the CEO and run it. Yeah, there's a lot of mystery in there and it's hard to know what it's all about. But what we've decided is that as an executive search firm, we're opening doors not only to the C-suite to help them with key hires they need to make, but as well when they're making career transition themselves and looking to make changes, we're there to help. But 
the private equity firms are also looking for a lot of help. And so we came up with this idea, oh, let's, let's provide a what we call venture visions model to backable CEOs connecting private equity investors to these candidates that, you know, I'll give you a kind of an overview of what a backable CEO looks like. It's a person who's respected and seasoned, an industry CEO, CFO, or COO, typically one of those three levels or roles with real strong integrity, IQ, EQ, you know, there's no question about it, that they're in their space recognized as a transformational leader. They understand accountability, communication, and trust, and they just exude that type of uh, skill set as a leader. And that's not everybody. There's a lot of people that we talk to that are good leaders that are in the C-suite, but would never be recognized by a private equity person as backable because they just don't carry those traits that are required. So you talk about a transformational leader, which I, you know, frankly, it's a term that gets tossed around a lot. From your perspective, what does that look like? What are the characteristics that really make a leader, a transformational leader and, and good for a private equity model? Yeah. Accountability, communications, and trust. How you act when you're under pressure. That's the foundation. There's a lot of different writing that's been done on transformational leadership that suggests there's 10 traits. There's seven traits. You know, there are. There are a lot of different traits. You can measure them all. And if you measure, you can determine whether there's a transformational leader out of the pack. And typically, if you take 100 leaders and you put them all in a room and they all have C-suite titles and you ask them, how many of you are transformational leaders? They'll all raise your hands. Everybody knows that's the new benchmark, right? That's the benchmark. Then you start screening them. And what you find out is charisma is often a big part of what makes a transformational leader recognized as a transformational leader. And that charisma is a big part of their accountability, their communication and trust model. That's foundational. How you hold yourself accountable to those who you're working with or working for or working for you, you know, the same. Accountability is huge. And you'd be surprised how many people I work with that are in the C-suite that don't return phone calls, Make people wait on them. Don't have follow-up systems. They're always too busy to, you know, complete a sentence. Communication skills, absolutely huge. And again, you know, you look at how many C-suite leaders can talk, but they can't write. They don't have the ability to formulate vision. They might be able to take someone else's vision and strategy and execute, but they can't convey a really attractive, enticing vision. Vision is huge for a transformational leader and communication skills wrapped around that are a major part of it. And then the other one too is trust. Boy, everybody says trust. It's like, yeah, whatever. Boy, when the rubber meets the road, when your building's on fire and when you're talking to the press or you're talking to the board members or you're talking to the employees or the community, can we trust what you're saying is legitimate and that what happened you're taking accountability for, you're taking ownership in. Can we trust that what you say you're going to do next will actually happen? And you know, you take just these core personality traits, for lack of a better way to put it, and you score these people in the room that all have their hands raised, you're lucky if 5% of them really are transformational. Interesting. And you know them when you see them. If you're in sports, you say, you know, who are the top transformational leaders in college sports or in the NFL or the major league? They stand out like a sore thumb. If you look at it in the corporate world, it's the same thing. You know who they are because they just stand out. Yeah. Interesting. So it's an interesting new world that you're stepping into. Absolutely. So how does this differ? I mean, have you, have you had to, how have you guys in your business transformed to fit this new model and approach? 
Yeah. So what we found was that we were working with a lot of CEOs and helping them fill middle-level management roles to the C-suite. And occasionally we'd be working with some of the large companies on board seat roles. And that was three, you know, probably five years ago, about 30 to 40% of our overall business was at that level. Now it's more like 80%. And we think that in the next year or two with the model that we're applying here, it'll be 100%. We've transitioned dramatically so that our average fee is now about three times what it was just a few years ago. Now, that's all kind of self-serving. You might say, so what? Well, the point is, We did it through this focus by reaching out to CEOs and saying, hey, do you understand what a backable CEO is? Do you understand what they do, what the role is? And many of them say, no, I I have a friend of mine that works with private equity, but I don't really understand it. So we explained to them the role and the responsibilities of a backable CEO CEO or what they call an active chairman, so to speak. And we tell them that, you know, we're looking for people with these kind of traits. And we've got a list on our website. And all of this that I'm describing is on our, on our new website for Repel Equity Ventures. We say, if you're interested in being a backable CEO, this can be absolutely life-changing. The level of wealth you can generate working in the corporate world is significant at the C-suite. But once you build the bridge to private equity, the opportunity to make generational wealth is dramatically higher. And for those that can succeed in serving as a backable CEO, we'll support you. We'll screen you to determine if we believe you'll succeed. If we're convinced you will, we'll put you in touch with private equity firms that are in your space that are interested in having an exploratory discussion with you about this kind of opportunity. And if they partner up with you and say they will fund your efforts to go find acquisitions, we'll open the doors at the acquisition prospects through the founders and the C-suite leaders there and help you have conversations 10 times as many as you'll get on your own. Because we've got a team of business development people that do nothing but call people like you, a CEO who's got some needs for executive search or for career transition. And oh, by the way, backable CEOs is part of that, that equation now. Yeah, it's interesting. So I think it's great. I think it's a great approach. And I know that a lot of individuals, CEOs, other executives, as they're getting ready to leave their traditional corporate life are trying to figure out what those next steps are and aren't always sure how to get there. One of the things that comes to mind though, Pat, is how do you manage and balance conflicts of interest, right? So in the sense of, and frankly, I guess this holds true across the job search spectrum and the executive search spectrum, right? You may be doing business with a company or have done business with a company to fill roles. And at the same time, there may be an individual in that company that's an attractive target to move on elsewhere. How do you strike that balance? Yeah, it used to be a lot harder than it is nowadays. Years and years ago, if you worked with a company, let's say I worked with Dow, we worked incredibly deeply with Dow, so much so that one of my favorite testimonial letters that I got from Dow was from Andrew Liveris about the well, close to 100 different searches we ran for Dow during his reign. That's impressive. It was a massive opportunity while it lasted, but people come, people go. But during those early years, if somebody uh, found out that while we were working for Dow, we had a candidate in our hip pocket that was from Dow that we were putting into some other company, oh, we just get lit on fire. You can't do that no matter what. And what we say, what you don't understand is in nine times out of 10 cases, those people came to us. They reached out to us 
and said, I'm making a change because my spouse has got a new job in, in the East Coast and I don't want to be in Michigan anymore. Or there's a log jam in front of me and there's no opportunity for promotion. And I've been here a while and it's just time for something new. And so we'd say, well, listen, you know, we've, we've got some opportunities where your background is spot on. But if anybody found out we were doing that, we'd get lit on fire. Now I have HR executives tell me, Pat, if we can't keep our people, that's our job. If we can't promote them, if we can't convince them to stay, that's on us. I'll have HR executives that'll come to me and say, Pat, we've got a search we need to run for a senior level role. And oh, by the way, if you hear of anything from me, keep me informed. That's just mind numbing. 15 years ago, they would never have trusted us enough to say that. But with LinkedIn and Monster.com and, you know, just so many ways for people to network and find out about opportunities through social media, et cetera, the barrier to that type of issue has fallen to the point where we never get asked anymore about that issue by the HR people who used to just drill us over it. Now, that said, I won't rate a company. If I've got a relationship with Dow and I'm actively working that relationship and we're being supplied searches and we know there's more coming there's no way we're going to target that company because relationships matter. And so we have hands-off policies that say, if we're working with a corporate organization, that whole organization is protected. Interesting. That's good. All right. So I have another question for you as it relates to, you know, we talked about the kind of the characteristics of the transformational leader with trust, communication, and accountability. And I think this whole view of charisma. One of the things that strikes me is just the diversity of the industry, or let's be honest, the lack of diversity at senior levels. And certainly, and I certainly see this even more at private equity firms, right? So the large public companies are doing a great job of creating more balance, whether it be gender or race or other equity balances. But private equity hasn't necessarily followed that same path. And when you're looking at executives that have already been a CEO or a CFO or a COO to then move into a backable CEO role, that's hard to do, right? So it's, it's a, a glass wall, a glass ceiling on top of a brick wall or something. How do you balance this? Tell me to go find candidates in the chemical industry for a search and say that we want mostly diversity candidates. And I'll tell you, where's the magic wand? You know, if they're not there, I can't create them. All I can do is tell you that there are adjacent industries where there are significantly more diverse candidate pools. And if you're willing to be flexible, so if you're in the chemical industry and you're looking for somebody from the chemical industry and the diversity just isn't there in significant numbers. Oh, by the way, if I bring you a diversity candidate from any decent sized chemical company, what are you willing to pay for? They're like, well, we have salary bands. We have, you know internal equity issues that we have to compete with. I said, no, you don't. You can't talk out of both sides of your mouth because these candidates are getting 30 to 40% more because of their skin color or because of their diversity background, whatever it is. And they know it and they can go talk to three other companies the minute they decide they want to make a change and they'll have people knocking down their doors to get to them. So can you compete? Oh, well, we never thought of that. So how can you not think about it? In a, in a market where the supply is extremely limited and the demand is really high, you can't force salary bans on that scenario. So it gives them a little bit of a wake up call. Everybody loves how candid I am when I tell them that because I'm supposed to say, oh yeah, I can go get you diversity. I can tell you I can get you diversity if I go to consumer products companies. So if you're selling chemicals to cosmetics companies, let me go get you people from the cosmetics companies. They've got all sorts of great women leadership. 
They've got all sorts of diversity in some of the ethnic products care categories. Tell me you're making plastics and uh, or plastics additives, chemicals for plastics, and you want me to go to the plastics industry. We're right back where we started. It's the same thing. So certain consumer products companies are much better than manufacturers of non-consumer products companies, if you want to put it that way. All right. So you brought up the salary bands. I'm, I'm going to ask you this question just because I'm always interested and I know other people are interested. What kind of bumps do you see? What, what are you seeing in terms of the land of compensation these days when we're talking about placement at an executive level or even a non-executive level? Yeah, we're primarily doing everything at the executive level. So I'm, I'm not going to speak to much below the VP leveling work because we really aren't working on them at all, really rarely. But I can tell you that people who are making changes are seeing pretty consistently right down the line, at least a 20% increase on salary if they're really well qualified, if they're not a job hopper. You know, you can be a job hopper and move around, but that will, at the executive level, right below the C-suite ranks, come back to bite you. Because people, you know, are looking for succession candidates below the C-suite ranks. You can job hop all day long. You want uh, to change every two, three years as a CEO and get away with it. But below the CEO ranks, everybody's clamoring to try and get people that'll stay for at least five to 10 years so they can promote those people to the C-suite. So you need to be careful. You don't jump around too much, even though that seems to be for the millennials, you know, the, the talk of the day, oh, just change jobs every two years and you'll keep climbing. You can do that to a point. You start getting up to the higher level ranks, you got to slow down. Interesting. Yeah. So 20% salary increases are very normal. And we say that partly because, again, it's so easy to find alternatives. If you decide you want to look for a job nowadays, there are so many resources available to you that weren't there 10 years ago. LinkedIn barely existed 10 years ago. Yeah. I mean, LinkedIn has changed the game in terms of identifying and engaging with contacts from other companies and finding candidates, et cetera. So it's- I mean, look at this green circle around everybody's head that says open to work. How many people have that on there while they're currently employed at existing companies where they've been there three to five years and they got a green circle around their head? They're not unemployed, but they're open to work and they're not afraid to say that. Yeah. I will tell you my indicator when I look, you know, if I'm following people and and colleagues and friends on LinkedIn is when they change their headline and there's a distinct, you know, when they've gone from being, you know, VP of blah, 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 to saying, you know, transformational leader, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, that person's looking for a job. (laughs) Or right below their picture, there's a block in there that says what they're really good at and why they should be considered for it. And it's no longer them talking about their personal brand. It's talking about clearly I'm looking for something. All you got to do is read this and you can tell. And they're still employed. They're still taking a paycheck. That used to be so frowned upon that people were scared to death to have anybody know they might be out on an interview. Right. Not anymore. Right. Not anymore. Times have changed. So let's get back to your Rapella Equity Ventures and your backable CEOs. You know, so we've talked a little bit about how this applies to the, the CEO and the executive itself. What's important when you start talking about your business partners, the PE firms that are looking for candidates or heads of portfolio companies, et cetera? How are they responding to this and, and what's important to them? Yeah. If you take all the private equity firms and again, you stick them in a room and there's a hundred of them in there and you say, well, that's a hundred percent of all the private equity firms. About half of them will use as their primary lead source, uh, investment bankers, company search firms, and large you know, supply networks, but they're mostly getting from them 
deals that are on the market that are going through an auction that are competing for interested private equity uh, stakeholders. That's a lot of work. You put a whole lot of time in and it's a crapshoot. It's almost like gambling with dice as to whether or not you're going to get to the finish line and get to acquire that business. The other half are saying, you know, we're, we're doing some of that because we have to, but we really focus the most on going after proprietary, passive deals that nobody's involved in yet. And that's where we're saying these backable CEOs have some real leverage and some value. If you take a person who's got a clear expertise in a particular lane, like let's say you're a chemical industry executive, now more specific. You are in plastics additives. Now let's make it more specific. Thermoplastic resin, you know, really nailing it. Okay, ah, there's a hyper little niche. In that space, you're kind of a rock star, aren't you? Yeah, I've been in that space for a long time. I climbed the corporate ladder through manufacturing, R&D or sales. And so I understand all the different challenges within an organization. I made it to the C-suite. I worked with private equity. I've got a vision for what I could do to help other acquisitions that we might make to solve problems and to quickly grow their business because I've been there and done that. That's the type of backable CEOs that we're working with. And I share that type of person with a private equity firm who says, we're interested in that thesis. The thesis is an interchangeable word for a business plan. We're interested in that thesis lane where this person stands out as a rock star. Now we just need to get them on the phone with the founders and CEOs of all those small companies that aren't in play. They might be in six months. They might be in a year. They might be in three years. But let's get them developing relationships. And you'd be surprised how once you get them in conversations and as a backable CEO, you're talking to them about problems they're having and you're brainstorming them on solutions that you can help them provide. And then you're saying to Rappel Ellen said, oh, by the way, they need a CFO. They need a vice president of R&D. And we're coming in and bringing value to the equation. That CEO that wasn't for sale starts to think, you know, I trust you guys. Let me tell you about why I might consider so. And all of a sudden things change. It happens a lot more than you think, where if an investment banker or a company search firm calls them up and says, hey, are you willing to sell your company? Because we got buyers. You're like, leave me alone. I get these calls all day long. I don't want to talk to you guys. Bunch of hawks. Get out of my yard. It's a totally different approach. It's a relationship-based approach. Problem-solving, value proposition turns into opportunities to sell. And that's what these other 50% of the private equity firms really understand we generate significant value for. Yeah. Well, I think what's interesting in, in the whole PE space, when we, you know, as you look at, and, and we've talked about how there's been so much activity over the past several years with private equity in chemicals. And a lot of it, and I've talked to, you know, some various companies that they've been privately held, right? So they're privately held companies. They're somebody's baby, right? In many ways, they've grown this business, they've transformed this business. There's this trust ownership that goes deep and they want to know that whomever is the next generation, even if it's an external next generation coming to buy the business, is going to care as much about the business as they do. And yeah, when you're getting approached like a telemarketer, you're not quite so convinced. But when you can have a business leader that says, I want to lead your business, that's a completely different equation. Exactly. So one of the things we've, we've talked about, people are talking about is kind of you know, just the economic uncertainty. In fact, what somebody earlier today said, you know, the economy and the chemical industry even is not at equilibrium, right? So we've had inflation, supply chain challenges, ups and downs of all kinds of varieties. How has this factored in for your approach, for your clients' approaches 
Does it factor yet? It's not really anything that we're hearing much complaining about or much about in general. You know, when we went through the Great Recession, of course, we were hearing much more so long before the media was things are getting squirrely, squirrely. Things are getting scary. Things don't seem right. Something's off. And our economists are telling us to start paying attention. And it was months later, and we were seeing a significant drop off in hiring demand. We're not seeing that at all. We're not having any issues. We're hearing everything in the media that everybody's hearing. I have a tendency, I'm a very optimistic guy. I have a tendency to believe I can solve any problem. So throw it at me and and let everybody else whine and worry. I'm going to work around it and ebb and flow. Okay, that sometimes can bite you in the butt because you end up behind the eight ball after it's running you down, trying to catch up to those who are better prepared. But whatever. The point I'm getting at is we're not hearing a lot of cut, you know, threats. We're not hearing, um, you know, we're not going to continue to scale. We're not going to continue to expand yet. There was, you know, after the Great Recession, a significant catch-up period. Everyone was catching up from all the problems the Great Recession caused. And then there was, now we're expanding and we're really taking off. And so we're going to pour all sorts of resources into adding additional people. And oh, by the way, we didn't do succession planning at all for years. And so we're going to really double down on getting ready for all these retirements that are coming. We're not really hearing anything that would suggest that the economy is yet affecting anybody that we're talking to. Interesting. Yeah, I would I would agree. And I, and I thought it was worth the conversation. And I'm hearing various things, right? You know, so we're, we hear a lot about inflation. We hear about potential recession. And yet, you know, you made the point of um, a lot of baby boomers are finally really retiring, right? So there's it, there's this latent and pent up demand in the industry. I think there's a challenge that if we look at some of the decisions that were made in early 2020, right? When the pandemic and the shutdowns were first taking place and some people were quite reactive. Others stayed the course. Others had real reactions in terms of their business operations, their people, et cetera. They're still trying to catch up from that too. So it's interesting. Yeah. What about the hybrid workplace, right? So that's our new norm. So I've been told, right? Again, the media here says that the hybrid workplace is where we are. Does this factor into your business and into into kind of the decision processes that you guys are making? Yeah, it's affecting us very personal level. We've got almost 50 people in our building in Pensacola, Florida, and many of them have been not begging, not necessarily complaining, but bringing up the idea of work from home on a very regular basis. Well, we're a very strong corporate culture, a very family run business, and we have a lot of fun. Most all of our employees are between 25 and 35, great majority of them. And we're able to mentor and develop and have a lot of fun with those people in the office. How do you mentor and coach and have fun with them when they're at home? It's really awkward for me. It really is. And I don't really like it. But my leadership team, mostly in their 40s, are saying, oh, well, it's the thing we should all be doing. Everyone else is doing it. Why shouldn't we? And we can cut our operational costs dramatically by not having this big building. So we put our building on the market. We've got a 15,000 square foot Mediterranean villa for a corporate headquarters that I custom built. It's absolutely gorgeous. Racquetball court. It's the inside of it's an art gallery like mine on the wall here. It's all over my offices. And it's, it's a beautiful building. We're putting it on the market just because everybody says that you know they want to work from home. It's okay, fine. Let's see how it works. And are you going to not have an office? We're going to have a small office. We've got 15,000 square foot now. We're going to go down to about 3,000 square foot and have just a core space for a few of the key leaders and shared offices. When people want to have meetings, they can come in and have them and let everybody else work from home. And it's funny. I think it's crazy, but it's working. 
We've got almost half the employees working from home now and coming in as needed. I just am baffled by the fact that it's actually working. So I said, well, let's just give it a run and see where it goes. I'm also ready to retire. I'm, I'm going to be 60 this year. And uh, so I bought a house in the mountains in Chattanooga and I'm working from home and it's working for me. So go figure. You know, leading by example, I guess. We used to find that when we get searches for regulatory people, it has a lot of regulatory roles within the chemical industry and a very small pool of really talented people. And they fight for those people. They move around quite a bit too, because there's a small talent pool. And the ones that are really good can, can do a job for two, three years, take that regulatory program to a new level, and then want to go do it for somebody else and have another neat, exciting challenge. The companies used to say, we've got to have them in headquarters. We've got them at it. And I said, no, you're not going to get the best people because 80% of them work from home. And it was always a challenge to convince these executives that that was normal. And now it's normal for just about every role. So it's an incredible transformation. It is interesting. I mean, I, I guess I worked, man, for years when I worked for Shell. I mean, we had flexibility. Most of my team was in Europe. I mean, it didn't matter if I was working from the office or working at home much of the time, right? So I guess I became accustomed to that flexibility. Go in when you need to go in, to work from home when you need to work from home. And now it's becoming a norm in a lot more places. As you say, I do worry about how you instill company culture and really train up and create some of those connections for new employees. It's not easy being remote as a new employee, right? So it takes some different techniques, I guess. Yeah. Salespeople have always been in large numbers accepted for working at home and nobody ever seems to question it. Partly though, with them, their communications, you know, Gabby talkers, they love to get out in the community and talk to, you know, at at sporting events or at church or at the mall, they can go anywhere and make friends. So for them, it was always just normal. But for R&D people, manufacturing people, how are you going to do that? Robots, I guess. They'll make robots do all the work and they'll run them from home. I don't know. We'll find out. I think uh, I think over the next decade, a lot of this is going to become more apparent in terms of just how it all shakes out and evolves. So, Pat, what's next for you and for Rapella? What should we be looking out for? Well, I figure we've probably got five more years before I exit. So I'm going to drive it hard and do everything I can to take the firm to the next level. And then I'll probably spin it out to private equity in about five more years. So anybody out there listening who wants to acquire a search firm and run it and be a part of spinning it out to private equity, we're open to options. We're growing extremely fast for doubling our revenue just about every year right now. And we figure we'll probably do that for the next three to four years with the idea that at that point, we'll be a prime takeover candidate for one of the larger strategics, you know, the big 10, the Shreks of the world, or a private equity firm. So we're preparing for that. But at the same token, we are driving all sorts of process improvements into the delivery and execution of our search. I would argue that with our smart search system, we've got one of the most robust executive search delivery platforms on the planet. And it's extremely unique. And of course, I'm going to say that I created it. But when you get our clients who are Fortune 500 CHROs, private equity people telling us in their words, they've never seen anything like what we're delivering. And we show it to them visually and they say that before they even hire us. We know we're onto something. So we've got some pretty exciting things going on that are uh, allowing us to compete at the highest levels like we never could before. That's great. Very good. Well, I am. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing more from you and, and seeing what's happening. Well, thank you. Much appreciated. Thank you for joining us again on The Chemical Show. Appreciate having you here and sharing some of your insights. Well, thank you for inviting us again. Much appreciated. We look forward to doing it again sometime soon. Absolutely. And thanks everyone for listening to The Chemical Show and we'll talk to you next time. 
We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.